Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, Intercepted listeners. I'm Amy Goodman from the daily radio and TV show Democracy Now! The stakes in this Democratic primary are very high, and the corporate media is failing to bring people the crucial context necessary for voters to make informed decisions. That's why Democracy Now! is teaming up with Jeremy Scahill and The Intercept for a five-hour-long broadcast on Super Tuesday. From 7 p.m. to midnight Eastern, join us along with Intercept reporters and analysts like Mehdi Hassan, Naomi Klein, Ryan Grimm, Lee Fong, and Aida Chavez. This race is not going to just determine who takes on Donald Trump. It also has at its center the future of the Democratic Party and movements for justice. You can watch the live stream tonight from 7 to midnight Eastern at democracynow.org and theintercept.com. I'm Amy Goodman. Now on with Intercepted. We want to take you now to the White House where moments ago President Trump addressed the coronavirus. Let's listen in. You know, I'm the president of the United States. This is a list of of the best rated countries in the world. And the United States is now, we're rated number one. Yesterday, that they believe it's inevitable that the virus will spread in the United States, and it's not a question of if, but when. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, I have the worst fever and the worst flu. Is this just like flu? This is not good. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very bad. Very bad, I think. American people, beyond what people would have thought. Worst case scenario. Doesn't matter what I say, really. I can tell you, panic. I hope it's going to be fine. Thank you all. Thank you all. I may leave you behind and you can answer a few more questions. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 119 of Intercepted. There is a massive effort trying to stop Bernie Sanders. That's not a secret to anybody in this room. Uh, The corporate establishment is coming together. The political establishment is coming together, and they will do everything. They are really getting nervous that working people are standing up. The Democratic Party establishment is rapidly consolidating around the candidacy of Joe Biden as its best chance to stop Bernie Sanders' drive to the Democratic nomination. Billionaire Michael Bloomberg is continuing to blast his propaganda ads across the country, and Elizabeth Warren is vowing to stay in the race regardless of how she fares in the 14 states voting on Super Tuesday. There are super PACs parading around as unity groups that are basically just anti-Sanders attack operations. 
The New York Times reports that Democratic Party bosses are, quote, willing to risk intra-party damage to stop Sanders' nomination at the national convention in July if they get the chance. And things are certainly going to get even uglier in the days ahead. If you're voting for him because you think he'll win the election, because he'll galvanize heretofore uh, sleepy parts of the electorate, then politically you're a fool. There, there have been some candidates at times that I've seen on the stage in their, in their 70s that just don't look healthy. Mm. And again, I'm not just talking about Bernie Sanders. Is it, is it even possible to stop Bernie Sanders? With every passing day, I am more and more convinced that the only way we will defeat Trump and Trumpism is with a new politics that gathers people together. We need leadership to heal a divided nation, not drive us further apart. It's going to be much more difficult to... Uh, win back the Senate and keep the House if Bernie's at the top of the ticket. But that's a judgment for them to make. And uh, I think that'll sort of work itself out uh, in the near term. With Amy Klobuchar dropping out and tossing her support behind Joe Biden, it will undoubtedly have some impact on the race in the Super Tuesday state of Minnesota. And while the conventional analysis would say that it's to Biden's advantage, Amy Klobuchar has come under a lot of fire recently on issues of race and her time as prosecutor. And Bernie Sanders was already competitive in Minnesota, even with Klobuchar still in the race. And the reality is that Klobuchar's minuscule support in both primaries and polls was always just akin to basically some crumbs on the Democratic establishment table. It's also going to be interesting to see what impact Pete Buttigieg endorsing Biden will have. Buttigieg achieved an almost total absence of votes from African-Americans and Latinx voters during his four-state run, but he definitely was making aggressive appeals to become the centrist or establishment choice, and he was competitive in overwhelmingly white states like Iowa and New Hampshire. He also had a lot of billionaires supporting him, so I guess there's that. And then there's Elizabeth Warren. Her campaign sent out a memo over the weekend saying that Warren was committed to staying in the race past Super Tuesday, and the memo stated that the campaign expects Warren to, quote, have a strong delegate performance on Super Tuesday. They argued, quote, our grassroots campaign is built to compete in every state and territory and ultimately prevail at the national convention in Milwaukee. Now, while Warren has frequently praised Bernie Sanders' record and his positions, she has of late been attacking him more sharply, particularly over the past few weeks, including on the night of the South Carolina primary. Demands more than a senator who has good ideas, but whose 30-year track record shows he consistently calls for things that fail to get done and consistently opposing things that nevertheless he fails to stop. Now, if Elizabeth Warren believes and her internal campaign polling shows that she's going to pull off a series of stunning upsets today in Super Tuesday, then this strategy makes sense. Warren is making an argument that she's the better progressive candidate and that she would do a better job of implementing progressive policies than Bernie Sanders. Whether you agree with that or not, it is a reasonable argument for Warren to make. But if the public polls hold up, then her only path to the presidential nomination would be in a contested convention where she likely has substantially fewer delegates than either Sanders or, as it seems now, Biden. So it is a bit perplexing what exactly is at the core of this strategy to attack Bernie Sanders. We want to gain as many delegates to the convention as we can 
from California to right here in Texas. Are these attacks against Sanders because Warren believes she can win over his voters? Because that has not happened in the four states that already voted. Is it a campaign to be vice president on a Biden-led or establishment ticket? Or is it to gather enough delegates to be a player in a contested convention where she could tip the balance to the establishment or the insurgents? With the entirety of the Democratic Party establishment, never-Trumper Republicans, media outlets, Mike Bloomberg coalescing around the anybody-but-Bernie and probably-Biden effort, it is interesting that Warren is going out of her way to attack Bernie Sanders, particularly because she says she agrees with him on so much. Now, it's worth noting that there are a lot, a lot of Warren supporters who do not view Bernie Sanders as their second choice. In fact, a majority of her supporters, according to polls, do not see Sanders as their number two choice. So I suppose there is also a scenario where Warren garners enough delegates to ultimately unite with Sanders in a brokered convention in battling against an effort to crush Sanders and the possibility of a progressive electoral movement to take on Donald Trump. We shall see what happens. The last 48 hours have catapulted Joe Biden to the top of the Bernie alternative lane, essentially transforming the once crowded Democratic contest into a two-man race. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look, tomorrow's Superstar Tuesday, and I want to thank you all. I tell you what, I'm rushing ahead, aren't I? All right, Chuck. Thank you very much. Uh, All right. Uh, It's Chris. But anyway, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by go. You know, you know, the thing. But what we are witnessing right now is the picture coming into clear focus. It is Bernie Sanders campaign and movements versus the most powerful political media and economic forces in the United States. Don't tell anybody, because these folks get very, very agitated and nervous. We're going to win here in Texas. We're going to bring our people together. Black and white and Latino, Native American, Asian American, gay and straight. 14 states and American Samoa are holding primaries today. More than 1,300 pledged delegates are at stake. That's about a third of all Democratic primary pledged delegates. Compare that to the 155 delegates that made up the four primaries that have already been held. At this point so far, Bernie Sanders still remains in the lead with 60 delegates. Joe Biden close behind him with 53. So Super Tuesday can and will be decisive for the next phase of the Democratic primary. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Intercept investigative reporter Lee Fong. Lee, welcome back to Intercepted. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's talk about Joe Biden and South Carolina. What can we learn from the outcome of that Democratic primary uh, over the weekend and what it signals for Super Tuesday? Well, Joe Biden needed a victory. He has never won a primary caucus. He's run for president multiple times. And for him to focus his efforts on South Carolina and deliver a huge win really resuscitates his campaign. Um, It was a commanding victory, won every county in the state. You know, in terms of fundraising, and telling his donors and telling his supporters that he still has a chance. Uh, This was very important. Does this give Biden a direct path to a plurality or a majority of delegates? Who knows? You know, there were a lot of folks on MSNBC and other cable news programs who made, I think, a lot of generalizations. They kind of extrapolated too much from this race. 
on MSNBC, for example, because Joe Biden won a majority of African-American voters in the state, that means he has a command of those voters or, you know, a majority support of those voters nationwide. The single most important demographic in the Democratic Party spoke up tonight, and that's African-Americans. And they spoke loudly and they spoke clearly. But polls show that, you know, no racial group is a monolith, right? And, you know, just generally, you know, it's, it's hard to, to extrapolate too much from a single state. South Carolina voters, the majority of the, the folks who voted for Biden told exit polls that they self-identify as moderate or conservative. That's not like the rest of the country, or at least most other Democratic voters. They're much more likely to attend church. They're much more religiously conservative. Again, that's not like a lot of other states. So this South Carolina is particular in many ways. So it, it's hard to say how this reflects how folks will perform in, or vote in other states. Now, on Sunday, Joe Biden uh, was interviewed on Fox News by Chris Wallace, whose name he botched, but that's, you know, that's that's Biden these days. But when Chris Wallace asked Joe Biden about his strategy going into Super Tuesday, he noted that Biden hadn't held a single rally in a Super Tuesday state in over a month. And in the state of California, where I'm speaking to you from, Biden has only one office in the entire state compared to Bernie Sanders, who has 23, or Mike Bloomberg, who's been spending a lot of money hiring up campaign staff. And here's what Biden said on Fox News. Uh, I think it's about the message. And I think that people know who I am, although I've been outspent 41 to 1, I think it was, or 40 to 1 in South Carolina and other places. I think we've now begun to raise money, nothing like they have raised. We've raised about $18 million this month, just $5 million overnight. Uh, um, And so I, I think things are picking up, but we'll see. So, Lee, we have Joe Biden suggesting that he won South Carolina because of his name recognition. Who is financing Biden's campaign right now? And what do you make of Biden's declared strategy going into these Super Tuesday primaries? You know, the problem for Biden is that he has not built a small donor base like Trump has, like Bernie has, like Elizabeth Warren has. He's mostly relying on donors giving the maximum amount. Um, He's kind of tapped out of these more establishment-connected fundraising circuits. These are folks in Wall Street, people affiliated with lobbying in D.C. A lot of the big donors in Hollywood are backing Biden. He's kind of tapped out these donors. He's relied more on a new super PAC set up by his supporters, Larry Rasky, a longtime lobbyist, someone who's lobbied for a range of corporate interests, also some foreign clients, uh, has set up a super PAC that has made up the gap in the lack of fundraising for the Biden campaign. I mean, that's the other kind of side of South Carolina is that Biden was running out of money, and now he might get a second win. Donors might open their pocketbooks. They might see him as a way to stop Bernie. He's trying to coalesce the anti-Bernie forces within the party. But we'll see. You know, this argument that you need organizers as the only path to the nomination, it's hard to say. We live in a media climate. You know, we, we live in a, in a world where there isn't a lot of social interaction. Everyone's staring at their phones, staring at cable news. And so if you do have these moments where you're generating lots and lots of positive press and momentum, sometimes you don't need organizing. You do need kind of that press narrative to lift up a campaign. But is it enough? Biden has focused so much of his, of his resources into South Carolina. He hasn't focused on the Super Tuesday states. One of the other kind of dynamics here with the Democratic nomination is that to receive delegates statewide in a state, uh, you have to be viable. You have to receive at least 15 percent of the of support for a lot of states, including crucial states like California. Biden has consistently polled in the last few months below viability, below that 15 percent. Perhaps he doesn't have 
the time or the organizing resources to capture a large share of the vote in these states. But now, because of his South Carolina bump, if he does receive a bump, he might reach at least viability. So that's kind of a minimum standard. He won't receive a a ton of votes, but just enough to hit that 15% could mean a lot of delegates moving forward. Lee, let's talk about Mike Bloomberg for a moment. He hasn't yet been on the ballot, but he will be on the ballot for Super Tuesday. And he has just been absolutely dumping money into ads in Super Tuesday states and really uh, across the country. Explain a little bit about the infrastructure that Bloomberg has paid for and set up around the country. And also, what is the tenor of the ads that Bloomberg is buying and airing in all of these states? Michael Bloomberg has kind of stitched together a campaign overnight. You know, he got into the race in November incredibly late. Um, So he's had to go on a hiring spree, hiring a lot of political strategists, campaign consultants to set up campaign offices, primarily focused in the Super Tuesday states, but really all over the country. And he's just carpet bombing the entire country with ads of every type. He's already spent over $550 million in broadcast ads. He's spent well over $100 million in online ads targeted to Facebook and Google. But he's spending a lot of other ways that we just don't know because he's being very innovative in the way he's spending his money. Really, wherever you look, if you're looking on a a paid platform or any kind of digital news or media platform, you're going to end up seeing a Bloomberg ad. Now, most of these ads are positive ads. Many of them imply that Obama endorsed or supports Bloomberg. He's been a leader throughout the country for the past 12 years. Mr. Michael Bloomberg is here. Leadership in action. Of course, Bloomberg threatened to run against Obama in 2008, did not endorse him in 2008, barely endorsed him in 2012, did it in a kind of a backhanded way. And then later in in leaked audio that came out earlier in February, we heard from a Goldman Sachs event that he didn't even really sincerely endorse Obama in 2012. The second Obama election, I wrote a very backhanded endorsement of Obama um, saying I thought he hadn't done the right thing, hadn't, done, uh, hadn't been good at the things that I think were important, and Romney would be a better person at doing that. But Romney did not stick with the values that he had when he was governor of Massachusetts. But, you know, the average viewer does not know that. His campaign surrogates and campaign advisors have gone on cable television and have threatened to unleash a torrent of ads against Bernie Sanders. They've released a few online videos that kind of appear like an ad and they attack Bernie and they've kind of lifted up random Twitter users to say that, you know, Bernie supporters are are violent or angry or toxic, but they haven't really done the paid advertising to go after Bernie or, or Elizabeth Warren for that matter. Yeah, Lee, I also wanted to ask you about Elizabeth Warren. Her campaign sent out a memo over the weekend that stated that they're in it to win it still, that they are going to remain in past Super Tuesday, that they believe she's going to perform solidly and pick up delegates and continue on to the convention later in the summer in Milwaukee. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it does seem also like over the past several weeks, Elizabeth Warren has more often gone out of her way to criticize or attack Bernie Sanders. Bernie and I agree on a lot of things, but I think I would make a better president than Bernie. I'm wondering, given that Warren has stated that she's in sync with Sanders on so many policies, and given that you have very powerful, wealthy sources from the Democratic Party to Mike Bloomberg and beyond organizing around anybody but Bernie, 
What is the strategy or potential strategies that Warren is engaging in right now? Like, what's her end game here, as far as you can tell? The proportional design of the Democratic DNC delegate selection process means that if you have the resources to keep competing, as long as no single candidate uh, reaches the 1991 pledge delegate threshold going into Milwaukee, going into the convention, that means that the nomination is decided on a second or third ballot, which means superdelegates can get involved. And some of these minor candidates that you know might not have even close to a plurality, they might have a, a sizable chunk of delegates going into the convention, they can wheel and deal and cut an agreement with another candidate to select the nominee. What appears to be happening with Warren is that she's trying to gather as many delegates as possible going into the convention. So she has a strong a set of cards, essentially, so she can negotiate for a strong position in the next nomination, whether that's a nominee like Joe Biden or a more centrist candidate or perhaps Bernie. She's really going after all the candidates. She's she's sharply criticizing Bernie on the stump on a regular basis, but perhaps she's just trying to maximize her hand, get enough delegates so she can go in and then negotiate with, with whomever the final nominee will be. Last week, the New York Times reported a story uh, titled Democratic Leaders Willing to Risk Party Damage to Stop Bernie Sanders. And in that piece, uh, they spoke to 93 superdelegates who were opposed to Sanders getting the nomination, uh, even if he ends up with the most delegates but doesn't have the 1991 uh, that you were referencing. Jay Jacobs, the New York State Democratic Party chairman, who is also a superdelegate, was quoted in the article saying that if Bernie, quote, doesn't have a majority, it stands to reason that he may not become the nominee. Meanwhile, Representative Veronica Escobar of Texas said, quote, if 60 percent is not with Bernie Sanders, I think that says something I really do. The way they're doing the math is basically let's add up everybody that got votes other than Bernie Sanders, and therefore Sanders shouldn't be the nominee. But what's your analysis of this reporting and this trend that is now seeping much more into the public space? Well, this is all kind of murky because we really don't know how the majority of delegates, how the majority of lawmakers feel about this. We know that there's a lot of anti-Bernie sentiment. That's not shocking. Uh, The New York Times only looked at a slice of these folks, uh, as you mentioned, about 100 or so. But I went to a DNC meeting last summer to do some reporting on this very prospect of a broker convention, and all the state party chairmen, all these party officials promised me that no, the candidate with a plurality of delegates going into the convention is going to be the nominee. They didn't see it as a big problem. Back then, Bernie Sanders wasn't performing as well in the polls as he is now. Back then, Biden was. And now, look, uh, we're in March of 2020, and you're seeing superdelegates and party officials come out the woodworks making the argument that the candidate with a plurality of votes shouldn't be the nominee. So they're all reversing course, I think, because of the power politics at play. They don't want an anti-establishment populist Democrat to take the nomination. It's not the first time. It just hasn't happened in many years. You know, Hubert Humphrey in 1968 didn't even run in the primaries, and he became the party nominee. In this case, it's possible that something similar happens again, where there's just so much contentious infighting, so much kind of ugly backroom dealing, potentially maybe some kind of scandal surrounding these backroom deals that delegates will call for a unity candidate, maybe someone who didn't even run in the primaries to be the party's nominee. Someone, you know, the the Times article looked at some potential nominees, apparently 
Party insiders have talked to Senator Mark Warner, a more moderate conservative Democrat from Virginia, or even Sherrod Brown, a more progressive senator from Ohio as the unity candidate. On that issue, Lee, you had Representative Steve Cohen of Tennessee uh, suggesting that Sherrod Brown, as you just mentioned, of Ohio, could emerge as a nominee at a brokered convention. Representative Don Beyer of Virginia saying, quote, at some point you could imagine saying, let's go get Mark Warner, Chris Coons, Nancy Pelosi, somebody that could win and we could all get behind and celebrate. Wouldn't this ultimately just completely shatter the Democratic Party as it currently exists entirely, given the kind of support that Bernie Sanders has? I mean, what are your thoughts about these suggestions that some yet unnamed individual could emerge as the nominee through this kind of chaotic brokering and backroom dealing? Look all across elections in the West, in the industrialized countries in the world, there is anger at the establishment that Powerful elites in the political establishment and the business community, they're making deals that benefit themselves, and they don't care what the consumers think. They don't care what patients think. They don't care what voters think. And this caused a lot of anger. This is the reason that populist candidates have done very well on both the left and the right. It's very dangerous, I think, for party elites in the DNC to say, look, um, we don't care about voter sentiment. We don't care how people voted. Uh, We know best. And we're going to select one of our friends to be the nominee, even though, you know, you just went through this election process that took six months and this campaigning process that's been going on forever over the last year and a half. It's possible that they disregard everything and just select some caretaker candidate, some unity candidate who didn't even run in the primaries. And I think that would foster a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. And it could be dangerous because that could potentially help uh, Trump in in his reelection. After that New York Times piece, you did a, a deeper dive on a superdelegate named William Owen, uh, a DNC member from Tennessee. Tell us what you learned as you dug into this superdelegate, uh, William Owen. Well, William Owen is a Biden supporter. He's also a lobbyist. He's someone who represents a variety of clients, including a medical device product company. You know, as someone with multiple job titles, he has multiple interests in politics. At one point, he's arguing as a, as a DNC delegate that we need a brokered convention. We need the delegates to get together and decide the nominee, potentially overriding voter intent. But he's also a lobbyist, and that means he needs access to politicians. Even though he's, he's arguing that he knows best for the Democratic Party, campaign finance disclosures show that he's given a lot of money to Republicans. Actually, in this election cycle. He's given only to Republicans. He's given to Republican senators from from different states, also to a super PAC that benefits the leadership of the Republican Party, including Mitch McConnell. We interviewed him and he said, look, he was very candid and forthright. He said, I, as a lobbyist, need access to both parties. I need to advance my client's interests. And that means paying campaign contributions so I get access. And that means even to the Republican Party. But he's not unique here. I mean, he's unique in the sense that he's been so outspoken in his belief that he that a broker convention could give superdelegates additional voting power. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And, you know, influence over the ultimate nominee, but there are many different corporate influence peddlers, people who work in, in lobbying. If you look at our story from last summer, we went through a, a number of the delegates, the superdelegates, and many of them are, like uh, Mr. Owen, uh, employed by special interests. And these special interests, you know, regardless of what folks say about who would be the best nominee for the party, if you're a lobbyist and you're serving your client's interest, you've got to wonder if those motivations come to play when they're selecting the nominee. You know, Lee, back in October, you also reported on a super PAC that was set up to support Joe Biden, organized by corporate lobbyists on health care, weapons manufacturers, finance. Who was that super PAC organized by and where is it these days? Biden's super PAC, uh, Unite the Country, is backed by a longtime Biden supporter named Larry Rasky. Rasky is a lobbyist. Uh, he runs his own lobbying firm, Rasky Partners. Uh, his firm is registered to lobby on behalf of Raytheon, uh, the hospital interests, even the Republic of Azerbaijan. But the super PAC has a, has a number of other folks who are helping organize it. Another individual is Steve Shale. This is a former Obama strategist, someone who works at another lobbying firm at Cardenas Partners. This is a Florida lobbying firm, and they have a long list of corporate clients, folks in the insurance industry, Walt Disney, AT&T, the Florida Hospital Association. So, you know, Biden has co-opted kind of Obama's promise, also kind of running on the implied support of Obama, although Obama has not endorsed. <laughs> but he's he's surrounding himself and relying on the support of well-heeled corporate interests of political insiders. Um, this is not really the, at least the message of Obama 2008, where he was promising to get rid of lobbyist influence. Biden is at least uh, projecting that image, but in practice, surrounding himself with special interests. Now, Lee, last Thursday, a super PAC called Persist PAC announced that it was going to buy $9 million in TV and digital ads for Elizabeth Warren, according to a New York Times report. And the ads are supposed to have been running in California, Texas, Massachusetts, uh, Super Tuesday states. What do we know about the super PAC that is supporting Elizabeth Warren? We know very little. And I think this is interesting because Elizabeth Warren ran in 2012 for the Massachusetts Senate seat by promising to disavow Super PAC support. She had the kind of famous Super PAC challenge with her competitor, Scott Brown, the Republican in that race, pressuring him at every debate to disavow uh, his own Super PACs. Elizabeth Warren has run in this campaign, again, attacking Super PACs, you know, criticizing uh, the support of Super PACs for other candidates. So if you really want to, to, to live where you say, then put your money where your mouth is and say no to the PACs. And now we're in the last kind of final phase before Super Tuesday, and she's receiving millions of dollars in this Super PAC support. And this Super PAC was created in such a late stage that it has not disclosed any donor information. It's spending millions of dollars in paid advertising. Not only does it have you know, no caps in terms of how much money can can receive or spend, but we don't even know who's backing it. It kind of belies the, the Elizabeth Warren message of, of clean government, of no special interest 
influence, but her campaign is essentially being resuscitated by the super PAC. Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota has dropped out of the race along with Pete Buttigieg and uh, Tom Steyer. Amy Klobuchar is from the state of Minnesota, and of course Minnesota is uh, a Super Tuesday state. Klobuchar is endorsing Joe Biden. What is your initial assessment of of what this means? Because I I was under the impression, and I saw a lot of uh, Sanders supporters making the argument that Klobuchar staying in the race was a good thing for Joe Biden in an effort to try to ensure that Bernie Sanders would not win the state of Minnesota. But what, what's your just, well, hot take, I guess, on the impact that Amy Klobuchar leaving the race and endorsing Biden will have? The 2016 Republican race for the presidential nomination was deeply divided. And because of those divides, so many candidates staying in the race for so long, often with super PAC support, you had the Republican establishment struggling to coalesce behind a single candidate. They couldn't choose if they wanted to get behind Chris Christie or Marco Rubio or finally Ted Cruz as the anti-Trump candidate. Partially because of this divided field, Trump could run away with it. Here we are in 2020, and we have a very similarly divided field. The Democratic establishment is perhaps more coherent. You know, they've worked together to run negative ads on Bernie. Bernie's really the only candidate that's received a sustained attack by televised paid advertising. For Amy to drop out and now Pete to drop out, that simply reduces the number of candidates in the field and increases the chance for Biden not only to hit the viability threshold of 15%, but to do very well on Super Tuesday. One of the races, the the so-called down-ballot races that's happening uh, on Super Tuesday that you've been reporting on is in Texas, the Congressional District 28, where Jessica Cisneros is battling against Henry Cuellar. Cuellar is the incumbent and one of the most conservative Democrats in the Congress. Tell us about Jessica Cisneros and her campaign against Henry Cuellar and why this is a particularly important race to keep an eye on. There are a lot of interesting primaries on Super Tuesday, but this House race, this South Texas House race, crystallizes the power structure, the struggle between entrenched moneyed interest and this new insurgent uh, progressive populist movement. It's just clearly on display here in South Texas, where Cuellar is a very conservative Democrat. You know, he served in Rick Perry's administration, so, you know, very Republican friendly. He's voted with Trump over 70% of the time. Cuellar has uh, received a lot of support from the business community. He's the number one recipient of private prison campaign contributions. He's the number two recipient of payday lender donations. This campaign is, is really incredible because this is the very first time that the Koch Brothers Super PAC, Americans for Prosperity Action, has gotten involved to help a Democrat. They're spending money in this South Texas race to help Cuellar. Nancy Pelosi has sided with Cuellar. A lot of the big business community is pouring money into the South Texas district. In terms of Democrats and Republicans, you know, you don't see this partisan divide here. You see even Republican interest groups coming in to interfere with the Democratic Party and to keep Cuellar in office. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, they've gotten involved to endorse Cisneros, who's, you know, a very young immigration attorney, a very progressive activist who supports the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, a union reform that would make it easier for workers to join a labor union if they choose. The last time we saw kind of an epic fight between 
established corporate interests and this progressive populist movement was the AOC primary against Joe Crowley and AOC prevailed. But I think now the establishment is, has its guard up. That's why they're spending so much money in South Texas to prevent another progressive upset. It's a terrible cliche, but this is a, a, a battle for the heart and soul of the, the Democratic Party. There's so much at stake at the presidential level. But I think for this one little house race, you just look at the, the level of spending. It's much nastier. And I, I think it will forecast uh, whether other progressive populist candidates have a chance later this year. Lee Fong, thank you so much for your great reporting. I encourage people to uh, follow it and to check out all of your work. And thanks for being with us again on Intercepted. Thanks, Jeremy. Lee Fong is an investigative reporter for The Intercept, longstanding interest in how public policy is influenced by organized interest groups and money. You can find him on Twitter at LH Fong. Now, as we watch the most powerful figures in the Democratic Party establishment line up behind Joe Biden, it is worth noting that this dynamic of the insurgent versus the establishment has permeated the history of electoral politics in this country. It was at the center of the famed, some would say notorious, Democratic National Convention in 1968 in Chicago, when Minnesota Senator Eugene McCarthy entered the convention with the most votes. Chicago, Illinois. The convention of the Democratic Party nominating tonight its candidate for the presidency. That man will be Vice President Hubert Horatio Humphrey. Eugene McCarthy had run a fiercely anti-war campaign against the Democratic Party's support for the Vietnam War. And as police attacked protesters in the streets outside the convention, the party bosses stole the nomination from McCarthy inside the hall. What are you trying to strong-arm stuff? He's an elected delegate. Chicago police are now in the aisles here with billy clubs clearing people out. This surely is the first time that policemen have ever entered the floor of a convention. In the United States. Police swirling all around us, people screaming, being dragged to the paddy wagons, a scene of wild disorder. 21 and one half votes for Senator McCarthy. This is going to do it. And 103 and three quarters. And Vice President Hubert Humphrey is the nominee of the Democratic Party for the presidency of the United States. Now, in more recent years, we certainly saw Donald Trump destroy the establishment Republicans in the primary of 2016. Hillary Clinton failed to stop the challenge from Barack Obama in 2008. He could have been considered an insurgent in that scenario. But she did succeed against Bernie Sanders in 2016. And while Clinton did win the popular vote by more than three million votes, Donald Trump won the Electoral College quite definitively. Right now, the Democratic Party is preparing to intensify its effort to force Joe Biden through as the party's nominee and to crush Bernie Sanders' insurgency by any means necessary. We have not even seen a fraction of the dirty business that is about to go down in this primary. So what can we expect to see in the weeks and months ahead in this battle from the establishment Democrats going against Bernie Sanders? 
Joining me now is a longtime Democratic Party activist and organizer, Peter Dow. Those of you active on Twitter may know him as one of the most vocal online supporters of Hillary Clinton's campaign back in 2016, certainly on social media, and as someone who frequently clashed with Sanders supporters or Clinton opponents. I had my own slew of arguments with Peter Dow on Twitter over the years. He worked for John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004 against George Bush and Dick Cheney. He worked for Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2008 against Barack Obama. And he worked on an independent initiative to support Hillary Clinton in the 2016 race. But this time, Peter Dow is all in for Bernie Sanders. He has seen the so-called opposition research files on Bernie Sanders that were compiled by the Clinton campaign universe and its supporters. Peter Dow, welcome to Intercepted. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. What I find fascinating about watching your journey and, and the candor and honesty that you're clearly showing is the story of how you ultimately have decided in this particular field in this year to support Bernie Sanders. What is it about his campaign that has put you front and center, particularly on social media, in trying to defend and promote the ideas of the Sanders campaign? The simplest answer to the question, and then I'll uh, elaborate on it, is that he's the only candidate in this race and really one of the only uh, people in national politics calling for an overhaul of the entire system, questioning capitalism, questioning the entire establishment. He's calling for political revolution, Jeremy. That's a, that's quite an audacious thing, a bold and courageous thing. The word revolution is not <laughs> that commonly used. I do believe we need a political revolution where millions of people stand up and say loudly and clearly that our government belongs to all of us and not just a handful of wealthy campaign contributors. He has also sparked a massive grassroots movement that wants the same thing and that's willing to back him up. That's powerful and that's essential. I find myself at a point, and over the past year or two, there's been a very, as you, as you noted, a very open re-examination of my priorities. When I see kids in cages, when I see half the country can barely afford $400 while billionaires are buying $60 million condos on Billionaire's Row in my, in my hometown of New York and just leaving them empty, just bartering them for fun. When I see uh, kids being shot in classrooms, when I see the torture of migrants, and these kids were in cages. Now, of course, the family separation was, was really the Trump-Miller policy, but the cages existed under Obama and Pelosi. So, I'm seeing these travesties, moral travesties, injustices that just don't change. They just don't get fixed. They don't end. And I finally reached a point. I thought, okay, I'm in my 50s now. I've got a family. Am I going to look back and, and keep accepting incrementalism, keep accepting sort of this mid mushy midpoint between justice and injustice that the Democratic Party keeps going to? You know, well, we got to appease some Republicans, but some of these policies are not good, but we'll keep others. You have to reach a point where you need moral clarity. And Bernie Sanders and his campaign are providing moral clarity. He's not afraid to say the things that need to be said to change this entire system. So, you know, that's the long version of the answer. Peter, you recently tweeted, quote, as a staunch Hillary advocate and Bernie critic in 2016, I was privy to the Bernie Oppo book, meaning opposition research book. I also did my own extensive research. Talk about what opposition research you saw against Bernie Sanders and your response to the refrain that Bernie hasn't been vetted. This really gets me quite infuriated. I keep getting people coming at me online and I see these uh, 
constant comments from a lot of uh, mainstream figures. You know, Bernie hasn't been vetted. Just wait till he gets vetted. It's obvious that he's never been vetted in the press. I've not seen the four-part series in the New York Times or the Washington Post or NBC News or anything else. So we're in a whole new ballgame here. And this game is, could end uh, a little after mid-March. And then you'll, peep, you'll hear people saying there's this massive trove of opposition research that the Republican, that the RNC is holding, just waiting to unleash it on him. I can tell you categorically from everything I saw, and I'll describe in more detail what I saw, that that's a complete fabrication. There is no big treasure trove of Bernie Sanders' oppo waiting to drop. That's a tactic that's being used. Similarly, the way Bernie Bros being used to tarnish the whole movement, the idea that he hasn't been vetted is being used to tarnish his whole campaign. Into, it's really fear-mongering. So here, here's the reality. Back in 2015, 2016, I was obviously very publicly pro-Hillary Clinton. And by, as I said, by 2016, I went from being very favorable to Bernie Sanders to being quite critical of his, him, his campaign and his surrogates. I, at the time, became the CEO, like early 2016, of a media company called Blue Nation Review, which I renamed ShareBlue. And I had full editorial control, but the business was owned by David Brock, who clearly is another very, very pro-Clinton operative. What I did at the time was I tried to stay fact-based in my critiques of Bernie Sanders. So what I did was I had an entire research team. I had writers, uh, journalists, you know, people all working for me at this company. And I said, okay, we're going to dig into every policy difference between Bernie and Hillary. We're going to find all the stuff that may be negative, you know, stuff like the early NRA stuff um, and, and, and other things that I thought were showed that he wasn't everything that he was saying that he was. I was also given, and I can't share the source just because of confidentiality, a comprehensive oppo book, opposition research book on Bernie Sanders. And I'm talking not five pages and 10 pages. I'm talking 70, 80, 100 pages long, digging into comments from the 70s and 60s and just about everything you would want to know about Bernie Sanders. And I've seen oppo books before because I've worked at two presidential campaigns. It was clearly a professional work. It was shared among very few people. um, And it was thorough, thoroughly done and professionally put together by clearly by expert researchers. So here's the thing, Jeremy, nothing I've seen today or to date since then shows that there's anything left that hasn't already really been aired. Now, there could be something that was not in there, maybe a comment that he made in 1973 that just the researchers didn't find. But overall, the bulk of it is really the communism, socialism stuff. It's some policy issues. It's, um, you know, the essay that he wrote, um, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago. It's all the stuff has been aired publicly in one form or the other since then. So again, categorically, after seeing a massive amount of research on Bernie Sanders in 2016, a lot of it confidential, there just is no big treasure trove waiting to drop on him. It's a lie. The one thing that I'm confident of is there are going to be no surprises. And I can't say that for any of the other candidates in the race. Uh, I certainly can't say that about Joe Biden. I can't say it about anybody else who is still among the front runners. Bernie is really the safest bet as far as I'm concerned and from my experience. 
You know, Peter, because you are our guest today, I feel like we can have a, a, an intelligent discussion about the dynamic I want to present to you, which is that what goes unstated because corporate media outlets are not actually embedded in any way whatsoever in social, racial, economic, gender justice movements is that for many people on the left in this country, Bernie is not hardline enough on certain war positions. His comments on Obama's drone strikes, some of Bernie Sanders' past positions and votes. You know, I know just from talking talking to many, many people who have been involved with organizing on justice issues, that there are a lot of leftists in this country who are essentially holding their nose to support Bernie Sanders because they don't view him as a revolutionary uh, socialist. And that actually Sanders is expanding the tent and he's getting people that would possibly vote third party or would sit out the election or would vote libertarian. He's getting so many people who are militants in this country to consider, in the case of New York State, registering as Democrats. And yet we never talk about that. We talk about Bernie's dividing. Bernie's going to uh, hand the election to Trump. Bernie Sanders is probably the best chance Democrats have had in decades to encourage people who are outside the mainstream of the Democratic Party to contemplate voting the Democratic Party ticket in November. A hundred percent. And look, I'm actually one of those people who's more to the left of Bernie on certain issues. I think a lot of people would not believe that considering what I did in 2016. But in 2016, I made what I thought was a moral judgment of electing the first woman president and that representation being so critically important for the country. Was I wrong about the moral judgment? People will say, many people will say yes, some people will say no. But I was I was coming from a place of, okay, I think I'm doing the right thing here. Now, of course, I've reconsidered, reassessed and looked back and, and looked in my soul and and bared my soul to people saying, look, I'm taking a look at what this Democratic Party leadership from the in the 20 years I've been in politics, the moral injustices around us are, yes, the fault of the Republican Party and the far right to a large extent, but they're also the blame and the fault of those who will not stand up to them for whatever their motives. And that includes the entire Democratic Party leadership. Let's just talk about drones for a second. When Obama was elected, I I felt hopeful like the rest of the country. Then he goes ahead and expands these programs. He expands the drone program. He then conducts extrajudicial assassination, which is something that I don't believe Bush had had contemplated but hadn't done. So they actually killed somebody without due process. When a U.S. citizen goes abroad to wage war against America and is actively plotting to kill U.S. citizens, and when Neither the United States nor our partners are in a position to capture him before he carries out a plot. His citizenship should no more serve as a shield than a sniper shooting down on an innocent crowd should be protected from a SWAT team. Indefinite detention continued. Now, these are profound human rights abuses, right? And this was being done by Democrats who control every branch. So from my perspective, you're right. Bernie Sanders is really not calling um, in many ways for enough of a revolution. I've said the Democratic Party should be calling for a national strike. Now, whenever I ask for stuff like that, I say it should be um, certainly nonviolent. I'm a big believer in absolute nonviolence. I grew up in a war, so I would never advocate violence. But to your point, Bernie Sanders is actually one of the few politicians in this country he's seen extremely favorably because he sticks by his principles. I've said this a billion times since 2000 when I started. People want 
political leaders who believe in what they believe in. Democrats keep thinking, oh, if we just pander to appease to some Republican voters and and be wishy-washy, they're going to like us. No, they're going to hate you because they're going to see that you're pandering and you have no principles. The way you win is with somebody like Bernie, who just is unapologetic about his values. Give people a sense of how the Democratic Party's establishment or the elite wing of the Democratic Party responds? What does their playbook look like when facing an insurgent campaign like that of Bernie Sanders? Let me give a little bit of, of, of color to the whole thing. So when I worked for Kerry's campaign and for Clinton's campaign, I actually lived in the Beltway. I lived in Washington. I lived in Arlington for Clinton's campaign and literally near K Street for, for the Kerry campaign because that's where his headquarters were. So here I am, a, a house music producer turned uh, Democratic progressive activist online guy sitting here among the absolute elites of the of the media and democratic and republican politics because it's you know it's quite incestuous everybody knows everybody in washington everybody goes to the same parties everybody goes to the same few hot spots and you see them all being you know buddy buddy with one another so there i was really an outsider but inside the system and i have to say it was just illuminating to see how the machine protects itself from the outside the democratic party leadership. Okay, there are some amazing Democrats. So I'm not trying to paint the whole party with a broad brush, but there are certainly Democratic leaders who still consider people like Trump and McConnell and others, you know, they say they're adversaries, but behind the scenes, they're all part of the same system. And that system enriches everybody inside it. It enriches Democrats, it enriches Republicans. So to your question, the way the establishment works, it will fight fiercely, like as fiercely as possible, and it'll fight dirty too. Like this whole, you know, Bernie bro thing, trying to taint a massive diverse coalition as a bunch of raging young white males, trying to go from a few trolls on Twitter to taint a whole movement. They will fight dirty, Jeremy, and they will fight hard. The party's going to fight hard and um, do everything they can to, to, to have either Biden or somebody like that take it, take the nomination. Peter Dow, thank you very much for being with us on Intercepted. My pleasure. Thank you. Peter Dow has advised major political figures, including John Kerry and Hillary Clinton. He was once described by The New York Times as one of the most prominent political bloggers in the nation. He is now supporting Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign for the Democratic nomination. Peter Dow is the author of Digital Civil War, Confronting the Far-Right Menace. And that does it for this week's show. Tonight, we will be doing special coverage of Super Tuesday, along with our friends at Democracy Now! That will be from 7 p.m. to midnight Eastern. You can watch the live stream of that five-hour program at TheIntercept.com or DemocracyNow.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. If you like what we do on this program, you can support our show by going to TheIntercept.com slash join to become a sustaining member. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our lead producer is Jack Desidoro. Our producer is Laura Flynn. Elise Swain is our associate producer and graphic designer. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Transcription for this program is done by Nuria Marquez-Martinez. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 